historically dousing one's body in hot water is like great idea. Maxine McCoy, and this is Never Been Asked, where I invite my guests to break out of whatever box that they have been put in. And today I'm talking to author, playwright, super accomplished TV executive, Tara Schuster, whose book, By Yourself, The Fucking Lilies, reminds us that fixing our life is found in the little things like bathing during the sunlight uh, and gratitude, even when we're not grateful. So Tara, welcome. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Tara, most of your interviews, they focus on this insane success that you've had as a TV executive and now as an author and this glorious journey to self-love, which trust me when I say I want to get into all of those deets and then some. But before we get there, what is the thing that you've never been asked? I love this question. I feel like um, it's like a burning one for me. So I talk a lot about self-care and self-love. And the question nobody ever asks me is like, why? Why do so many people not only not feel self-love, but actively hate themselves? Like, where did that come from? Why? And that's a big question I've been asking myself post writing the book and particularly in COVID. Yeah. So when you ask yourself that question, what's, what's your answer? What are you figuring out for all of us who are like, okay, yeah, I actually have (laughs) no idea where this stems from, even though I've been going to therapy, even though I've been trying to self-help my way out of this, like what's, what's the conclusion? Yeah. So I was um, recently talking to my rabbi of all people. um, And I I was like complaining. I'm like, oh, woe is me. Like everybody else had parents who love them unconditionally. And because I didn't, because I was neglected, that's why I just never feel safe. I just never feel like I'm good enough. And she was like, "Um, you say everyone was unconditionally loved do you have data to support that? Like, I'm just curious. I was like, whoa, Rabbi, you are, that's like kind of harsh, but I like it. Kind of appreciate (laughs) you. Yeah, appreciate you right now. Um, But it was like kind of this light bulb moment that I think so many parents do love their children. And and they would say, oh, I, I do love them in that unconditional way. But how we receive love is a very different thing. And what we need from love is a very different thing. And a lot of our parents just weren't equipped. You know, they had their own trauma. They were dealing with their own stuff. It wasn't personal. It wasn't like an attack on us. But I I think that might be why the book even resonates with like, I've got college students. I've got 75 year old women. I've got men. Like, it's a really, really wide audience. And I, I, I'm thinking more and more that part of why it resonates is like, it rings the bell of this question, like, just like why? And, and so many of us can relate to that. So, you know, and that's to say nothing of all the societal reasons and particular structural. Yeah. Yeah. I remember it's so funny that you're saying that because when I was writing, you're not lost. I remember 
kind of going through some of the chapters and I don't know how you wrote yours, if it was totally sequential, but I remember just being like, there's something unaddressed here, which is like that core question of why. And it wasn't until I started addressing systems of oppression and the patriarchy that I was like, oh, now all of this advice can live somewhere, but not if we, you know, don't address kind of where we got some of these mindsets to begin with. And for you, you know, in the context of, if I'm listening to this and I had parents that I don't feel like, you know, you talk about, you know, there, you might've been privileged, but you weren't necessarily parented. Um, And I think there's a lot of people who have had that experience. Has there been a way that you've created either parenting for yourself as an adult or a new chosen family? Like, how has that looked like once you kind of step into a place of, okay, well, like I can, I can choose how to redo some of this. Yes. And all of the above, (laughs) like, you know, so I didn't set out to write um, a self-care book. I set out to save my life. Like that's the source material of this book. If you haven't read the book, I grew up in a house where things came to die. All the pets, all the plants, um, it was utterly utterly neglected. Um, And by the time I came out of that, I was just a mess wreck disaster of a person. You know, in my mid twenties, I suffered from this permanent headache, permanent migraine. Something I don't even write about in the book was like, I was going to all these doctors with the question, what is wrong with me? You know, so I I was constantly seeking, like, why am I so miserable? Um, And then I hit rock bottom at my 25th birthday when I drunk dialed my therapist, threatening to hurt myself. And, And that's where the book kind of jumps off. But what I did after that night of shame was I decided it's time to get real. I didn't have parents. Um, they were neglectful at best, abusive at worst. They're not, that's not changing. Like I cannot change that circumstance, but maybe I could be my own parent. And I had always been really good at school and work because those were ways to get external validation. So I was just like, let me go school work mind on this. I'll make a curriculum of self-care. Um, I called it at the time, a curriculum of reparenting myself And I was just like, what memoirs like can Nora Ephron teach me about how to take care of myself? Um, What does Tina Fey have to say on this? Like I read the memoirs of adults I admired. I creepily watched my friend's parents. Like what did they cook? How did they treat their kids? Could I treat myself that way? Um, I really looked at the world and, and said like, can you teach me how to parent myself? And I would write about it in this Google Doc. And after five years, the Google Doc was 600 pages. Mm. It was like this completely different book. (laughs) And that is when I was like, oh, yeah, uh, this is a story we're telling. And I bet other people feel this way. When you were writing that that Google Doc, as you started to speak about, it, I think one of the things that we do, especially, you know, we're looking at TV, we're looking at our our friends, and they're going home for Christmas or holidays, or we mm. care about their upbringing, whatever, and we just decide that we were the only ones that had a family like this. Once you started doing this curriculum for yourself, did you start to realize either amongst colleagues or friends or just your wider community that 
you weren't as alone in that experience as you thought. And then clearly by your book sales, it's very clear you were not alone. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's so interesting. You ask that because now I have like all the readers who write to me that I'm not alone. So, but the answer is twofold. I think by really intensely studying the people around me and what their experiences were, I actually noticed how not normal my experience was. So like my best friend um, in the book, her name's Fishy. Um, in life, her name's Fishy too. Um, uh, her, I like, I ask her and I still do. Like my dad just said that we're all doomed and he'll never escape this financial crisis and nor will I. Is that something you've heard your parents say? Mm. And she'd be like, no. And, and model back to me my parents haven't talked to me about financial stress. Like in those, in those ways, they would say X. And that was, are you okay? Yeah. Like, like that was, and it was really important to kind of understand that my experience was on the extreme, but the extreme helped me. I think the reason my book resonates partially is because it's extreme, but then people can feel the shades it's like comedy, like absurdist comedy or anything. Like when you go to the edge of something, you can kind of see the bigger shape of it. Totally. Uh, so, totally. and yeah. it's interesting that you say that. Cause even, you know, reading there were even, you know, when you're talking about drunk dialing your therapist, I was laughing when I was, reading <laughs> it, even though I know that that is this core break of a, of a moment that got you to where you are. But, and, you know, while I had parents who did condition, you know, unconditionally love me and my siblings and, and I didn't have the experience that you've had, I have people in my friend group. So I've never thought, and, you know, anyone probably listening to this probably has someone in their, their friend group who had similar experiences to you where it's like, oh, actually that's something I can do is to model back. Normal. Yes. If that's, if that's a fair label. Yes. Um, like Maxie, yes, 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 yes. One thing you can do for your friend who has like been through something where, where you know, instinctively, like that was a little traumatic is when they say something their parent did is say to them, that sounds really hard. If I went through that, it would be really hard for me. Like even feeling seen Mm. because in a traumatic childhood, like you're not seen, you're you're literally not seen by your parents. So for your friend to give you the, that sounds really hard, just so you know, that's not something I ever heard. If you, if you feel like crazy right now, that would make me crazy too. Yeah. So that they don't, you're not offering a solution. Just acknowledging. Yeah, exactly. What they have gone through is, is totally valid. And you're not just writing it off as like crazy parents over the phone, That it's exactly. like, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. exactly. Yeah. It's, um, it's, it's really helpful to understand that. And also, you know, you look at what you had gone through, right. And then you fast forward to just, you said, right. Like I, I put like my work hat, my achievement, my, my school hat on and how did it show up in your work? This, um, this ability to really show yourself self-love, did it change the way that you worked? I think one of the reasons that I was so fucking, hell bent on doing well at work was because it was the same sort of, um, impulse of, as getting out of my house, 
which was, I need to climb fast and I need to go. And I really only have two factory settings. It's like, go, 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 like burn yourself out and off. Like those are the only two places. No in between. Yeah, no. I mean, now I have, I thank God have a better in between setting, but at the time and when I was really hustling at work. And so I think what's kind of crazy is that my self care part actually wasn't the thing that helped me achieve at work. Like really the trauma and the need to escape, I let that be my fuel. And when I got to a place of stability, which for me, it was like, I really needed financial stability. Um, Once I had that, then all these self-care rituals could really take effect. Looking back, could I have been nicer to myself along the way? Fuck yeah. And, yeah. and anyone I talk to now, yeah, I try to give them tools that, that anyone can use now. I wish someone had given them to me back then, but at the time their self-care like wasn't a thing. Right. And also I think it, sometimes it is like, you do have to have the moments. Like I remember getting off of like a 15 hour flight, still trying to make it to my friend's birthday, waking up late in like a puddle of melted chocolate. I had fallen <laughs> Cause that's what I decided to eat for dinner and just being like, I, why couldn't I have just said no to that thing right. and not try and do it all. And like not right. try and eat chocolate for dinner and right. in it, you know, just like, sometimes I think you have to go through this sort of like micro ridiculous moments in order to know, like, actually it's just like, I want this to change because at the end of the day, that career is like not going to keep me warm at night. Like I'm going to keep myself warm at night. Yeah. It's like, we were talking about the the edges of something. Like if you go to the extreme, it might fucking hurt and you might suffer, but I guarantee you it gives you more space to see what are the other possibilities here? Totally. hundred <laughs> percent. And you're like gonna come, you're, you're, the pendulum is going to settle yeah. somewhere in the middle, but sometimes it just takes some yeah. experience. But and, and mindfulness, like, yeah. are you awake for your life? If you are, then this stuff is way faster. Right. Um, if you're not, it, you may never yeah. get out of it. Yeah. Honestly. I mean, all of it. Yeah, exactly. It, it's all a big numb. You know, as you were kind of talking about some of those, those leaps that you made in your career, one of the things that I remember highlighting when I was reading your book is like, it's, it's not about the big breaks. It's about, you know, these, these tiny breaks. And I think, you know, it's actually ironic that the word is break, right? Because some of, some of the tiny breaks aren't always good things. They're things that when they were happening in the moment, or like, crap. Um, but also then it goes well. And then sometimes you look back and you're like, that was, that was awesome in the moment. What is the tiny break that you look back on that you may not have realized was a, was a moment in speeding all of this, you know, this journey up for you, but that now you look and you're like, wow, that's awesome. (laughs) And maybe something that you did for yourself. Cause I think when people are listening, we think about the things that happened to us versus Mm. these breaks being the things that we chose to do. I'm like, my whole body has chills, the good chills. I fucking love this question. Um, so I, I was working at Comedy Central. I was a digital producer in their stand-up area. So I had like seen all stand-up. I would choose what stand-up clips go on our website. And this plum position opened up with the Colbert Report. And I fucking love Stephen Colbert. And it was to be his digital producer. And I thought, 
oh my God, I have to get this job. I must do this. And I, I had been working so hard at Comedy Central. I had a sterling reputation as like the responsible, like going to get it done, going to be the smartest about it. So I was like, I'm going to get this job. There's no way I'm not going to get this job. Applied, felt good, got called into the president's office. You didn't get the job. I was devastated. I'm talking, crying over ramen bowls, like crying all day. So fucking upset. Um, It was the biggest break imaginable because the actual job would have been to secure sponsorships for website things would not have been at the actual show. And because of that, I was in the Comedy Central building when they did a um, pilot screening of a little show called Key and Peele. Just a little, just a little, just a little, a little show. I mean, it was like a pilot. They were deciding whether or not they wanted to make it. And I snuck into the room, which kind of answers your question. Yeah. I like saw something going on and I just asked, what is this? Walked in, watched the pilot and then went to my boss and said, I get it about Colbert. I really want to work on this pilot. Can I, can I work on the show? And that is how I got Ken Peel, which like rocket shipped my career. That's awesome. It also, you know, there's, I don't know what the time span of both of those things happening, right? Like not getting the Colbert report and then, and then, you know, moving into, you know, sneaking it, not sneaking, but waltzing into that and then advocating for yourself, but it would be really easy. And I know that I've done it. Um, and I'm sure, you know, others listening have done it where you're just like, I'm, I didn't get the thing that I wanted. I don't want anything right now. I just like, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna sulk and be unmotivated and like, meh. Um, But then instead to actually just kind of like keep, keep your eyes up um, for things that you didn't know, you didn't know you could love. You gotta keep looking. I mean, everybody also don't be mean to yourself. Like if you, you, you have to acknowledge what you're feeling because you're feeling it but that doesn't make it true. We are not our feelings. That's yeah, you are, you're not your, your feelings. Dr. Lauren Hazori says, you are not your feelings. I'm like, oh yeah, yeah. okay. Yeah, you're yeah. not your feelings and most of your beliefs are wrong. So yes, feel however you're feeling, but also remember, hmm, I'm not reliable on this stuff. Mm-mm. So let me keep my eyes up because- also feelings pass. Yeah. So like, we're going to feel bad for this week. I'm going to eat a lot of halo top. Okay. okay. Next week's a new week. <laughs> it's, it is so true. And also, you know, because you're, because you just shared with us, like you called it your rocket ship. And I think any of us can look back and, and kind of pinpoint the unexpected rocket ship that tried, you know, attempted to not attempted actually did just categorically change things, even though you didn't know it was in the moment. You're also on right now today on the other side of a transition away Mm. from that experience. Can you tell, can you tell all of us a little bit about the, just the overall transition that you're in, in your own career. And what I'm really curious about, because I know I experienced this in my own book and my own work is like, what are the things that you really leaned on from your own writing in order to do this with a little bit more love and grace? 
Yeah, it's a, it's such a good question. Um, so I'm, I have moved away from being an executive. I was really fortunate in that my book did well and there's other projects that are happening for the book and for other new (laughs) bookish kind of things. Um, so I was lucky and I, or no, fuck that. I wasn't (laughs) lucky. Here's the deal. I never even wanted necessarily to be an executive as my be all end all. It was like a training and I thought it was awesome and it was a dream job. And if you're going to have a day job, being a TV executive is like the coolest for my, for my loves in life, like the coolest fucking day job you could have. But my identity was not tied to that job. My, My identity was always was always two things. And I kept these two things on my desk at work, connection, storytelling. I only want to do things if it's to make a meaningful connection with somebody or it furthers my understanding and my giving back to storytelling. So I let those two things be like my, um, my pillars and entertainment because I, I had seen so many people just go like, not so like get really like way too wrapped up in the ego of it. And then my assistant got my lunch for me. Like, doesn't that make me important? No, dude, no. it makes you lazy. <laughs> like, so, you know, so that, that had, I had always been really aware of that. And then I did little by little, the steps to be a writer. You know, I wrote this first book one hour at a time I'm... at 6 30 AM. Um, so well, you have a huge job. Yeah. Before yeah. work. Yeah. And then during weekends, that's how the book got written. Not yeah. because I went to the country for a year and took, took off. time off. No, yeah. I changed nothing. I still did my ridiculously crazy, stressful job, but I also pursued my passion. Yeah. And so I pursued it until it wasn't so risky actually to go after it, which is what I'm doing now. And, and I think the thing that I've really, um, had to really hold on to in this transition from my own book is the practice of being kind to myself mm-hmm. in actual concrete ways. What I wanted to know from you, cause I had tried to have a practice of gratitude around, right. Tying it back to those moments to like really keep me in the self-care and in the self-love. And like, I had, I had done it all. And I just like literally couldn't get into the routine until I decided to buy like a small little cashier's journal that Ah. at the time I was traveling all the time. So like, it was always with me and that made it really easy. And, And then the first year of doing it, when I went back and I read, it was like a book coming out didn't matter. Uh, you know, a big pay raise didn't matter. The big brand campaign, starting a company, none of these things were like, the thing. It was the way the light hit Charlie's face on whatever day, you know, like this random, like Lisa calling me and us laughing about the most ridiculous shit. It, it was all micro moments. And so what I was curious from you, I know a friend gave you the advice around gratitude, but what actually, like we all read the articles, anyone listening to this is like, yeah, you know, like everyone talks about gratitude, all the spiritual leaders talk about gratitude, but like what actually got you, what was the moment where you're like, okay, this isn't just something I'm doing for a week or, or two. This is part of my DNA and how I show up in my life. I, you got the chills again. Now I got the chills when you were describing like the light hitting Charlie's face. Yeah. That those are the things. Those are the things. Those, 
It's like, like life. Yeah. When I hear someone say, well, when I sell my book, when I sell my TV show, I'm like, dude, if when statements just don't work, they, yeah. nobody's happier. Yep. Um, but anyway, I, I, I digress. Um, you don't I, have to, cause also all day today. And like, I cried yesterday about something and there's shit in flux. And I was thinking about the end of your chapter, just saying like, like, just show up to enjoy your life. Like, what are yeah. you going to do to enjoy your life? And, and for me, it's like, it's just enjoying the moments, but yeah. yeah but it, it, so to answer your question, with gratitude, I think, you know, my friend who I thought was just like the most privileged person on earth, who was like a ballerina turned lawyer, turned doctor, Harvard, like all the things sure, I was sure, like, sure, sure, sure. yeah, I'm like, cool. Yeah. Gratitude. That, super easy for you. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's fucking not going to work for me. So I'll try it. You know, it was like, compl- like most of my things I tried cause I hated the idea. Um, but pretty quickly, it just gave me space. Yeah. I was just like, oh, yeah, I am grateful for coffee. Like, my life, like, please don't take coffee away. I love coffee. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've been doing it for 10 years now. And I think, like, what, like, to this day, I, I write a gratitude list. But I think what sustains me is not when I don't think about doing it. So I try not to think about, I need to write a gratitude list, but right after I write it, I try to sit in the feeling of what does it feel like to have done this? Mm. And it's a really good trick for any habit you're trying to develop is instead of like rushing through it, what does it feel like after? And, And can you marinate in that for a second? Like running, eating healthy food, like air squats for a hundred seconds when you've been at your desk all day. Exactly. Just because we rush through and then we don't get the benefit. And then we also don't get in our muscle memory quite Mm -hmm. as quickly. This is awesome. So if you want like a good hack on how do you make a gratitude practice stick, any of these things sit with it. Yeah. Right after you finish it. Yeah. It's like the nerve you're just, you're changing the neurological pathways to Yes. Mindful of what you're doing. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So I know that, you know, gratitude is ingrained in in a lot of um, these ways that you are showing up for yourself. Mm -hmm. I want to know it's and obviously it's free. Anybody can do it. You can do it in your own way. What are, what are the other things that you think anyone should be doing that are easy, free, especially during a pandemic, whether we have money, don't like, don't have to glorify this whole, like thousands of dollars to love ourselves. Like we actually need nothing. So what are like the, the, the nothing things that you come back to that make the biggest difference for you in self-care? I know gratitude is one of them. Yeah. Um, in my book, most of the things that I offer are free because a facial is great. A trip to Tulum. Awesome. Um, they're not self-care like self-care is a free thing that you can give to yourself. So in the pandemic in particular, I think taking a bath or just being in hot water with something sudsy, something lovely is an immediate way that you can jumpstart just feeling good. And like, there's a reason that through ancient cultures, bathing has been like such a thing. It's because it is a thing. It's because it feels <laughs> so nice. Um, But you're, I think you're forgetting a very important part about your own bathing, oh. bathing which is <laughs> yeah. that 
What time of day? Well, this is if you want to go next level, <laughs> like bathe, like okay. get, get on that level. And then if you really want to like soak it up in the decadence, take a bath in the daylight, yeah. in the daylight. It's such a, a fuck you to everybody <laughs> and everything is like, I'm going to take the sunshine hours and bathe, like let set yourself free. Yeah. That, that is the next level of bathing. Okay. Um, and then I'm going to bathe next, <laughs> except that I have to make the most of the one time I did my hair and makeup. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I'm like, wow, you look so good. Mm-hmm. I hope to look good one day. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, it, it, this is my one day. I love right. it. This You're is my one day. Okay. So we have the gratitude, gratitude list. bathing, and then free and easy. Make your bed, make your bed, make your bed, make your bed for the love of God, make your bed. Like you want a quick way to boost your overall happiness. I can guarantee it. I can make you five to 10% happier for the rest of your life. If you start making your bed, it's a really good way to show yourself that you respect yourself mm-hmm. enough mm-hmm. to lie in an orderly <laughs> place when you go to bed. Um, and it, it just, it does work like it of does. everything I can I, say. I am co-signing your advice on the highest levels. It can we do a PS, Can we do a PSA? Can we like get this out to people? Yes. We, we stamp our approval on this, this PSA, make your fucking bed, make your fucking bed. That actually should be your next book title. Make your fucking bed, make your fucking bed. I I, already have a next book title. I'm sure, but you know, I may, you know, you know, I loved in those tips that obviously we, as we talked about your friend, um, a very specific friend gave you the gratitude, but I think that, you know, in the context of friendships and and you reference so many people and and continue to uh, about the people that are bringing you to where you are, your next projects, your evolution of self, your rabbi. Um, and you know, you, you talk about your lady harem in my book. I talk about the girl gang. You talk about the hype men. I talk about cheerleaders. I was just like, yes, yes. (laughs) all of this. But I am curious because for me, I've worked in the women's leadership space for a decade plus. I have been surrounded by like-minded, badass women from different backgrounds who didn't think twice about when this woman is successful, I'm successful. How did you build that support system in a very different culture, like a TV culture, like a comedy culture that are so male dominated? Was it more difficult for you? Oh yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I actually just, this is like breaking news. Mm. Like, because I'm no longer where I worked, I talked to a former, they didn't, they weren't at the network. They worked, worked on a show and we could just have like a completely honest conversation. And then I heard what was really happening. Mm. And one of the interesting things was that I always sensed that there was a lot of resistance to diversity and inclusion things that I was bringing to the table. I mean, they were straight up resisting them when we talked, but she was like, no, they named your name. They're like, Tara wants us to hire X. Like like Tara is mandating quotas and like all this crazy shit which was really like validating because at the time I felt crazy. I'm like, why are they resisting? They feel like they're in 1950s Hollywood. 
They were. were. So it was, yeah. It, it is incredibly difficult. And, and I, I think entertainment, unfortunately, is extremely backwards. I mean, yeah. the things I've heard are shocking, except they're not shocking. Mm-hmm. They're the reality. And I think particularly in this year, I really found myself having to speak up a lot more because there's no fucking choice. Like I can't live with myself that way. I mean, even forget moving um, any other cause forward. I can't live with myself if I'm a part of that system. 100%. I can't. Do you find now, so you were advocating to the best that you could, you, you now sort of have validation that the resistance you were getting was real and potentially you were never going to be able to change it from the inside out. And you were a decision maker there, right? You were creating, but the, at the end of the day, you were a decision maker as an executive. Now that you're in a place of creation, you're making things, you're creating things. How, how are you using that same fire in you? Um, to do it from a, from a different way. Yeah. It's, it's, so that's something I really think about a lot and is on the top of my mind. And I think even in my, I, the executive in me that won't die is through hiring practices. Yeah. So my interns, the person who helps with graphics my website, my, whoever they are, that's my, that is part of my power. Yeah. It, that I can hire um, people who might otherwise not have gotten the opportunity. People like that's up to me. So hiring is still really important. I still mentor lots of people within the industry. Um, and, and, And aside from mentoring, it's like, how as a creative do I share my time, my resources, my ability to help somebody else with their own project. And I take that really seriously, that it is my job and responsibility to help other people have a platform. Um, and, and why wouldn't I? Like, cause then like in the most selfish terms possible, when I help somebody else, I get to be a part of their success story. Totally. That is dope as fuck. <laughs> totally. Yeah. It, I mean, it is, it is, why wouldn't you, but also people who are stuck in the systems, right. The systems of, you know, really poor decision-making think that the only way that they can continue and is, is to play by the rules at B, but then coming out of it, like what you're doing, you're like, great. I get to set the set of rules that allow people from every background, race, sexuality, um, class, all of it, be a part of, be a part of what I'm building, which is, you know, totally. And like, which, which is my, which is my own. And I would also say to anybody who actually is in a position of power within a company, I do not regret advocating ever. Like when talking to this woman, I mean, this like just happened. She was like, thank you. It actually, it, it opened up the conversation. conversation. I learned so much more and I was able to get people those jobs. Like, was it to the extent that I wanted? Fuck no. Was it, did it give some people their first resume item? Yes. Which is like, how you do anything totally. else and what did it cost me being uncomfortable for one minute there's a lot of us myself included that feel like 
there's been a lot of changes to friendships. There's also like, things are weird. Things are hard. Um, what have you experienced in this time? And also in this transition of like, what have you found out about your lady harem during this time? Yeah. It's so interesting because I get a lot the question, like you have such an amazing lady harem. Like I'm so jealous. Like I want a lady harem and, but We're not like, many, but they don't really ask like how, like, yeah. how do I do that? And it also, I had a big friend breakup mm. in the, like right before the pandemic, um, which like Taylor Swift and all of our songwriters need to start writing ballads about when a friend breakup happens. Cause it's so much worse than a romantic. It breakup. happened to me. And I mean, we are many, many years past it. And I still like, I'm still sad. There's still sadness in me. I think about this woman every single day. I, I've dated people for like seven years who I, I'm like, oh, who? Who's that? Like not thinking about it, but the loss of a friendship is so horrible. Hard. And, and so that really made me reassess everything. I was like, okay, I need some new fucking friends who don't have that um, particular thing that just pain. went awry, that pain. Yeah. Yeah. And so it was the pandemic and I was like, well, how am I going to do this? Like, I can't like go out. I can't, you know, so I just got really practical on it and I wrote it. What did you do? Like when you, when you're like, how do I do this? Like, what did you do? Tell us. Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, again, it's like my student executive mind. I was like, I wrote a list of people I had met a couple times and thought were amazing, but in pre pandemic times, we wouldn't have time to hang. Yeah. You know, like we were always like rushing and getting on a plane. So like you wouldn't follow up, you know, you're like, oh, we should get coffee. I I always say like I am when you're in those moments, you have to be in the business of making friends. And like, we know what it's like to get a deal done or to get a job. But like, I'm to sort of creep this person out because I want to be your friend. (laughs) So, yeah, exactly. So I like had this list and then I just called the people on the list and said, Hey, I'd like to be your friend. Are you open to that? Like that earnest. I love it. Was it, you know, when there was no like major explanation, just, I think you're dope as fuck. Would you be my friend? And how many, did you get all yeses back? Did anyone say no? (laughs) Nobody said no, but like how I told myself, like I would handle that rejection was like, oh, that's funny. I'm an adult. Someone just said no to my friendship. Cool. Yeah. Like that's weird. Um, but there were, I did this with a few people Two really became two of my dearest friends who I now talk to. Like last night I was on the phone for an hour and a half with one of these people. She lives in Washington, DC. Like like none of us see our friends anyways right now. So don't matter. Doesn't matter. So make a list, get on the phone get on that vulnerability limb and just say, Hey, would you be my friend? And yeah. then you, you have to follow up, be the yep. friend, be the friend model for them, how you want them I, to treat you. Follow up that. with them, send them cards, make them feel seen. I want to have two more hours of conversation with you <laughs> before okay. I let you go. I have to know what are you batshit grateful for? Oh, okay. This is going to sound, I think, really cheesy. That's okay. Um, but <laughs> um, my life. Yeah. 
the, so through my rabbi, I've been doing a lot of like prayer and I'm starting to pray. I don't know what's going on. Yeah. But there's this one prayer moda in a, which is like, you're basically like, Oh, this bo- like soul is in this body again today. Whoa. Cool. cool. And so I'm like, so grateful for just like, I get to be here. Fuck. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you get to be here. You get to write books. I get to meet you. And I get to meet you. We get to absorb your your amazingness. Yeah. Maxie, that's like, that's a bit, how else would I have met you? Like, whoa, cool. Now I know you. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm going to send you the email that says, can we be friends? Oh my God, please. The answer is yes. (laughs) All right, Tara, thank you. Thank you for having me. Never Been Asked is a woman on production. Maxie McCoy is your host. Our executive producers and creators are Maxie McCoy and Lisa Raphael. Sharissa Wright is our producer and editor for both audio and video. Yep, that's right. Watch Never Been Asked and everything Woman On on our YouTube channel and visit womanoncollective.com to join our digital collective.